It's good to see you all this morning. Good to worship God together. We're going to study God's Word, so I hope you have a Bible with you. Open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 10. So we, uh, at our house, the Mason house, we have a, a new game that we've started playing, and it's a game we bought wherever, Walmart, and uh, it's called Hot Takes. And uh, the game, everybody who's involved gets a card, and the card has an agree side and a disagree side. And so then somebody will pull a hot take out of the pile and read that hot take, and then everybody will flash their card, agree or disagree, and then you'll just have discussion and argument and debate, and it's yeah, fun times had by all. Um, so you pull a card that says, for example, pineapple belongs on pizza. Agree or disagree? Raise your hand if you agree. All right. Discuss amongst yourselves later on. You can talk about it over, <laughs> over lunch. Go get yourself some pizza and talk about it. Um, the Oscars are boring. Okay. All right. Um, this is a tough, it's called hot takes. All right. So don't send heat downrange. All right. Uh, pugs are ugly. Oh, goodness. Y'all got to leave, I think. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All dogs are cute. I'm all dogs. I don't even say that about babies. All dogs. Uh, all dogs are cute, including pugs. So here's a hot take from the first century. The gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews. Yeah, you didn't have to raise your hands, but if we did, all of us, <laughs> especially all of you Gentiles, uh, all of you Gentiles should be raising your hand. This should be your favorite chapter in the whole Bible because you're downstream. Your salvation is downstream from things that happen by God's grace in Acts chapter 10. It's interesting in my uh, daily Bible reading plan for this week, uh, my Bible reading plan had me in the book of Leviticus. So every day I'm, I'm reading laws about basically contagious impurity, that an impurity passes from person to person. You make contact with it, then you touch somebody else, and now there's this gold, this chain of impurity that's being carried forward. So it's don't eat these foods, or you can't come close to God. Don't touch these people, or these kinds of people, or these carcasses, or, or you can't come close to God. And so I'm reading that all during the week in Leviticus, while on the other hand, I'm reading every day Acts chapter 10, where God tells Peter, eat all the foods that Leviticus told you not to eat. The sheet comes down with a vision with all the unclean foods, and God tells Peter to eat the foods that were considered unclean. He tells and instructs Peter to sit at the table of someone the Old Testament law said not to go near. If you are, um, like me, biblically speaking, a Gentile that is not ethnically Jewish, Acts 10 explains why you who were outside have been brought near to Christ. If Acts chapter 9, which we looked at last week, is God's grace to those who thought for a moment they had it all together, Acts 10 is for the rest of us. Acts 10 is, as the name of the sermon this morning, Acts 10 is the day clean became contagious. And it's unfolded really in four scenes, just four words that we'll look at one after another. The first is lostness. Lostness. Look down in your Bible, or it's going to be on the screen for you if you don't have that. Chapter 10, verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion who, of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. 
He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we meet this man named Cornelius. We find out his hometown. We find out his occupation. And we find out his religious convictions. So he's, his hometown, where he's at, is Caesarea, which is really strike one. Caesarea has Caesar in the name. It smells like Rome from top to bottom, right? Caesarea was the seat of Roman military power. Caesarea was the seat of Roman uh, commercial power. It was a screaming reminder to all the Jews that we are occupied. We are Roman occupied. We are occupied by a foreign power. And not only are we occupied, and here's this guy from Caesarea, but he's a centurion. So in other words, the grip that Rome, the strong grip that Rome has on this entire region is strong because Cornelius is good at his job. He, he's, he works, he's in the employ of the system, of the Roman system. But interestingly, there's irony here in verse two. You see, he was a devout man and feared God. This is kind of breaking your categories, right? In the first century, this is exploding your category. God-fearer, devout man and feared God is a technical description in the New Testament. So he fears the God of Israel, but he ha- he's not a proselyte. He is not formally converted to Judaism. You could do that in the Old Testament. You could receive proselyte baptism. You could be circumcised even though you were Gentile and you would be considered in the people of God. He didn't do that, right? He worships Israel's God. He prays and gives alms. That's what this charitable word is talking about. But he's still outside the covenant people. So to Peter and to all the Jews at that time, Cornelius is unclean. This is why God has to give a vision to Peter to prepare Peter to walk into the house of a man who is considered unclean. So the first surprise in our passage is an angel of God saying to Cornelius, verse four, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. It's just interesting language, right? What do you do with that kind of language? So when we meet Cornelius, he is sincerely seeking the God of Israel, but in the dark about Jesus. He's living up to what little light he has, but he's in the dark about Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament and now has arrived. So we learn something from Cornelius here, and it's this. Fearing God is one thing, knowing Christ is another. Fearing God is one thing, knowing Christ is another. So in in the Gospels, Jesus made it very clear that religion is not enough. And guess who got super angry when he said that? Bible teachers. The the teachers of the Old Testament texts, they got really mad. In the Gospels, and Jesus brings this up, the people who claimed to magnify the written word crucified the incarnate word. Jesus would say to the religious leaders of the time, 
people who worshiped the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would say this, Jesus' own words, John chapter 5, verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they, the scriptures, testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. He's saying, basically, you should have looked through the telescope of Scripture and seen what it is pointing at, namely the Messiah who was promised to come, and yet you just look at the telescope. You don't look through it at what it's pointing at. You look at the telescope itself and think, telescope gives me life. No, look through the telescope. That's the one who gives you life. That's what Jesus is trying to clarify. It's possible to be sincerely religious and still be lost. So the the angel commends Cornelius' reverence and his prayers, but then he tells him, that's not enough. You need to send for Peter. And when Peter arrives, he preaches forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 43, you see verse 43, all the prophets testify about him, about Christ, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The angel said, Cornelius, send for Peter so you can hear the rest of the story. So you can hear what really was the center of the entire Old Testament, the promises about this one who would come and do this thing. So when we come back to Cornelius in the opening words of Acts chapter 10, we know a couple of things. We know he's a Gentile, but that's not gonna be an obstacle. And we know he's religious, but that's not going to be enough. He needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needs to repent and believe. We see something else, how someone moves from lost to found in this text. How does someone move from lost to found? Answer, God gives the gift of repentance. Let's just stop and think about repentance because it's a word that we can talk about but we don't always stop and define it or talk about what it looks like. Repentance is, repentance is humility before God. Repentance is coming to a point where we say, God, you've, you've been right all along. I've been wrong and you've been right. You can't receive the gift of salvation without repentance. And the interesting thing is, when you keep reading the text, you get to Acts chapter 11, and in Acts chapter 11, Peter retells the story of what we just read here in Acts chapter 10, the story of what happens to Cornelius and his household, and when Peter's done describing this to the Jews in Jerusalem, Notice the joyous conclusion God's people reach in Jerusalem. They say, it, it says this, when they heard this, this retelling of the story, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Their conclusion tells you what Acts 10 was all about. Their conclusion tells you why Cornelius, the angel told Cornelius to send for Peter so that they could receive life, so that they could be, receive the gift of repentance from God. Remember Jesus would say in Luke chapter 15, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who had no need of repentance. And here in Acts 11, I love it because the church takes its cue from heaven and the church glorifies God because he gave the gift, the great gift, the gift of repentance. And he even gave it, uses the word even, even to Gentiles. And they didn't have to jump through Old Testament hoops to get it either. Two lessons for us to, 
take home. Number one, don't self-disqualify, look to Christ. So in Acts 8 and 9 and 10, God is rescuing all the wrong people. All the wrong people. He redeems sorcerers in Acts 8, eunuchs in Acts 8, persecutors of the church in Acts 9, Gentiles in Acts 10, right? Your, your mess doesn't stop God's grace. He is tenacious. His grace can overwhelm and overcome and outrun and outmaneuver our sin. It's the glory of the gospel. I wish I could take you on an extended tour of the hall of faith in the Old Testament, the great, most famous believers in the Old Testament, and then even carrying over into the new. So here's the short version. Jacob, the patriarch himself. Jacob lied every time his lips were moving. He was lying. He was a deceiver. Sarah, Jacob's mom, laughed when God made a promise about future children. She actually bust out laughing. And then God said, I heard you laugh. And she said, I didn't laugh. He said, I heard you laugh, right? Moses had stunning anger management issues. Samson, where do we even begin with Samson, right? David kills a friend, a loyal friend, a commander in his army, and then takes that friend's wife. Peter, in the New Testament, plays the coward on the hardest night of his Savior's life. Your backstory isn't a deal breaker. Grace can find you. Grace comes running 55 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea and finds Cornelius. Don't self-disqualify, look to Christ. Number two, stop trying to predict what kinds of people God can save. (laughs) Before Christ, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was a slave trader. Before Christ, Aurelius Augustine worshiped pleasure and worldly philosophy. Before Christ, C.S. Lewis was an avowed atheist. Before Christ, Chuck Colson was serving time as a political operative in the Watergate scandal. Before Christ, Rosaria Butterfield was spearheading the LGBT movement as a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. (laughs) Your backstory isn't a deal breaker. David Wells, theologian, writes, we cannot predict that some people because of personality, psychological need, or economic circumstance will become believers. I love this. Nor are there any whose personality or life experience can successfully insulate them from the glorious intrusion of God's grace. Man. Mm. So there's more to see in Acts 10. There's, There's lostness, but there's also nearness. Nearness, look down in God's word, verse nine of chapter 10. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky, and a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord. Peter has a bad habit uh, in the New Testament. He's the only guy who, with some regularity, finds himself saying no to Jesus Christ, right? So, and here's another moment, shining moment uh, in Peter's world. No, Lord, Peter said, 
for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. He's like, you think I got this pretty overnight? Like I'm, I'm morally blameless, right? This took a lot of hard work. I'm not gonna undo it in one meal just because I'm hungry, right? Verse 15, again, a second time, <laughs> the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. So Peter is obviously struggling <laughs> to receive this set of instructions and to eat the particular food items that are on that sheet are the exact wrong food items that we haven't eaten as Israelites. In fairness, the amazing implications of the gospel didn't land on the church all at once. So they knew Jesus was the Messiah. Peter's clear on that, right? <laughs> They, they knew that the way into God's kingdom and the forgiveness of sins was through faith in Jesus Christ. They knew that this new era, the new covenant era had broken in and the Holy Spirit would now dwell in every believer who trusts in Jesus Christ. But, so that's what they know, but you can hear them working out the implications of all of that. So what do we do about the temple? What do we do about the Mosaic law? What do we do about the practice of circumcision? What do we do about non-kosher foods, right? What do we do about all these other entailments? Do they roll over? Do they stop? Is there continuity? Is there discontinuity? What's going on, right? Peter hesitates here, and the reason is obvious because for centuries in Israel, it's been very clear what is and what isn't on the menu. And all the things on that sheet are not on the menu. <laughs> You ever, um, in your own life, you travel somewhere, maybe a different kind of place, different kind of culture, and you hear what's on the menu and you physically flinch? You ever had that experience before? It's like, what, what did you just say? <laughs> Hold on, run that by me again. That's what we're eating tonight, right? You ever had a, that experience where you're flinching at what's on the menu? I have a friend who, um, who told me early this week, uh, he said, yeah, they're empty nesters, kids are adult and grown up, and, um, and his wife was traveling to Washington, D.C., and so he said on Friday, I'm just gonna make myself um, corned beef and cabbage on Friday. And I said, that sounds like a terrible idea. Um, I've had your fajitas, why, why can't you do the, the fajitas? I've had your, I've had your spare, I'm not even going there, but I'm kind of directing this guy's Friday. Uh, I've had your spare, do, do your ribs, do your burgers. I've had your burgers, your ribs, your fajitas, like do any of those, but uh, it, look, if you're struggling, I'll bring you food. Like that's what the body is all about. I'll bring you food, but don't do this thing uh, on Friday. So wider context, backing up, I don't hate on the Irish. I probably have some Irish in me. We're from all, my family's from all over uh, Western Europe, uh, right? So I'm not hating on the Irish. I think St. Patrick was probably awesome. I'm good with him. Um, but, but I looked this up last night. Every photo I've seen of St. Patrick, he looks generally unwell. Uh, and I think I know why. Uh, corned beef and cabbage <laughs> explains that picture right there, right? So the analogy is obviously flawed on a whole lot of levels, but the point of contact is this. This sheet comes down and Peter recoils. Peter actually flinches because you eat this stuff and you become unclean. You even touch this stuff, you become unclean. So Old Testament law said, watch out or you'll catch uncleanness. Again, Leviticus is all about how ritual defilement spreads through contact. 
And, and here's the really interesting thing deeper down in Acts chapter 10 is the vision seems to be not really about unclean foods, but it's really about unclean people. The food is a stand-in. The food is a metaphor for the unclean people Peter is about to meet, not the unclean foods that Peter is about to eat. Back in the story, Peter has this vision, and while he's trying to figure out what it meant, the doorbell rings, and the Spirit tells him, hey, that knock on the door, that's people from Cornelius. You'll I'll tell you more about him in a second. Go down there and follow them. Go where they want you to go because I've sent them here. And so Peter goes down there and he says, so what's up guys? And then they say, Cornelius sent us. Cornelius was directed by an angel to call you to his house, verse 22, and to hear a message from you. That's the purpose for which ultimately God is sending Peter to Cornelius' house. They leave the next morning and we pick up in verse 24. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives. So now they've arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius said, I was expecting you. And he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. Must not call any person. What God has made clean, do not call impure. In one sense, if you just backed up to the sheet illustration, it's like, I thought we were talking about impure foods, and yet here I am in the house of Gentiles. What God makes clean in Acts chapter 10 is not a sheet full of food, it's a house full of Gentiles. The vision was about the full inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant family. Deeper things were happening underneath the surface, right? Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God brought the nations near. Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God flipped the script on what's contagious, what's most contagious. Old Testament law said, watch out or you'll catch uncleanness. New Testament gospel says, come to Christ and catch his cleansing. A hymn that some of you might be familiar with that we used to sing in my church growing up, would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. The contagious cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Cleansing and nearness are on the offer here to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And you see the nearness piece in Ephesians chapter two. At the same time, you, Gentile believers in Ephesus, Paul says, at the same time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. That is glory. Lostness, nearness, third, witness. Witness, verse 34. 
Peter began to speak. With verbal witness. He began to speak. Now I truly understand, he says, that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You think about it. Where there are no gospel words, there is no gospel mission. The gospel mission must be accompanied by the verbal proclamation of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did in his dying and rising. We've heard Peter preach before in this Acts series. When we studied Acts chapter two, we heard him preach. When we studied Acts chapter three, we heard Peter preach. The center of both sermons is the same. The center of both sermons is Jesus Christ. Front and center, looming large in both of those sermons. And then here again as well, there's an author and pastor I deeply respect. His name is um, Sam Albury. And I heard him reflecting, somebody asked him a question, what would you say to your younger preacher self? And he said, what I would say to my younger self as a preacher is too much exegesis, too little Jesus. Preachers use words to direct people to look at something. The question is, what's the something? The sermons that nourish me the most are sermons where the object that fills my sight is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Jesus Christ, his glory, his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, my sins in the shadow of his cross, my old life buried in the tomb outside Jerusalem. Those are the ones that nourish my faith, fuel my obedience. Notice the message centers on Jesus Christ couple of points that we could just evaluate. There is no peace, he says, except through Christ. That's verse 36. Also in verse 36, there is no Lord but Christ. There's no peace except through Christ. There's no Lord except Jesus Christ. Peter's listeners are going to receive this message and they are going to be, in verse 48, commanded, notice that word, to be baptized. Verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What's going on there, right? Baptism is your public identification with Jesus as Savior and Lord. Baptism, I love how how Patrick Schreiner says it in his Acts commentary. Baptism, quote, is a right of resistance. You have a new allegiance, and you declare it from the waters. There's no Lord but Christ The next thing that becomes obvious in Peter's sermon is there's no salvation except through his life, death, and resurrection. You can see that in verses 37 through 41. There is no forgiveness of sins and no hope of resurrection except through faith in him. All this is clear in a a short span. This is probably a concise version, a summary of the larger sermon, but these are the parts that are there. These are the pillars that hold the thing up. Verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Christian friends, don't leave vital parts out of the gospel message for any reason. To win an audience, to lower the bar of offense, Don't leave vital parts out of the gospel message. And here's another thing for us to think about. Christian, don't lose your confidence in the power of the gospel. It's wired up to do its thing. Let it loose, right? There's an application, I think, here even for, for parents. So parents, 
Don't try to accomplish by stern discipline what God alone accomplishes by transforming the heart. Be the kind of dad, be the kind of mom whose children can tell that your favorite story in the Bible is the one where the rebels get grace. Lostness, nearness, witness, oneness. All these Gentiles, they come to faith and they're baptized. It's like Cornelius' house becomes the new temple because the spirit fills the room as did in the Old Testament temple where the spirit comes and inhabits the place, right? There, these, each one of these Gentiles in that house becomes a holy habitation where God dwells by his spirit. They speak in other languages, in other tongues. They're declaring the greatness of God, right? It's a Pentecost for gentle, Gentiles. We've seen this once with the Jews earlier in Acts, but now the Gentiles get their own Pentecost event. It's Pentecost not in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost in the, sea, in the city where Caesar put his name. Caesarea gets its own Pentecost. It makes you wonder, as you're reading through the story, if you don't know what happens, if you don't know the spoiler, you're wondering, okay, when, when, they, when word gets back to Jerusalem, oh, the rejoicing that's going to happen there. Well, chapter 11, verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? So hold on, pause on the whole revival thing. Where and what did you eat? That was priority number one among the circumcision party. And so now Peter, this is why Acts 11 sounds a lot like Acts 10. Peter just retells the story we read in Acts chapter 10. And he talks about how because the spirit was poured out on them in the same way he fell upon the Jews, the bottom line, the conclusion that everybody had to reach is nobody could deny God was in this. Nobody could deny this is God's doing, the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Why would we ever hinder this? That's the language that's used. Why would we try to hinder this since God is so clearly in it? Understand where the gospel converts, it unites. The unity of Jews and Gentiles in the one covenant family is a struggle you can sense when you read through the New Testament. Just read the letters of the New Testament and you can sense the struggle is still going on, a uh, reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. It's not just the Jew and Gentile thing. Even in our modern day, through subsequent, subsequent history, any believers who use human identity markers to claim superiority over other believers are actively denying the cross of its power. There is no political superiority at the foot of the cross. There is no ethnic superiority at the foot of the cross, no national superiority at the foot of the cross. The period in which Christians use the Bible, for example, to defend slavery should be called at best a season of blindness and at worst a season of apostasy. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and it always was and it always will be. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male, nor female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. Are you filled with the Spirit? They're filled with the Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit? Demonstrate it in how you relate to believers who are different from you. Never stop and realize that when God keeps doing this thing of bringing people close to himself, God brings you close to himself, God brings other people equally complicated people, 
equally difficult people close to himself, we end up close to each other. <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of how this thing works. And in that way, oneness is the church's greatest blessing and the church's greatest test. Look at the bazillion denominations in our country alone and tell me that redounds to the glory of Christ. Get a Twitter account for one day and tell me the fighting, all the fighting is done solely in the interest of truth rather than the quest for power. The church should look like the new Peter. The church should look like Peter post Acts chapter 10. Peter walks into Acts 10 calling impure what God had cleansed. Peter walks out of Acts 10 with Gentiles he calls brother and bacon bits in his beard. There is an absolute transformation that undergoes in Acts chapter 10, right? Our worship and our welcome make the gospel visible. The sheet full of food, turns out, wasn't ultimately about the food. It was about the widening door of the kingdom of God. It was about the inclusion of the Gentiles, those people, those non-kosher foods Peter saw on the sheet. That's the equivalent, think about this, that's the equivalent of the person with the bumper sticker in the church parking lot that makes you say, hmm, we had one of those among us today, right? To which God then says, yes, I've made a place at my table for them. <laughs> Leviticus is a whole book where everybody's fixated on not touching and not eating what's unclean because that stuff spreads. Acts 10 is the day clean became contagious. Friends, we have a gospel that outcleanses what sin defiles. <laughs> Believe it. Rejoice in it. Sit at tables. Welcome a Cornelius and let this cleansing gospel do its thing.